the Lord. Well, uh, let's get our Bibles out open to 1 Corinthians 6, or page 1314 on the Pew Bible in front of you. You're definitely going to need a Bible today. You, you always need a Bible. But today, if you don't have a Bible, you're going to be tempted to think, now he's making this up, this can't be in the Bible. So you need a Bible so that you're sure that I'm not making it up. And uh, if you're here visiting with us, or if you have been coming for a while and you come to the second service, uh, we're excited and grateful for that. But we also want you to know that we are absolutely committed to discipleship, and we're committed to community, because without community, there can be no discipleship, and you and I cannot be all that God created us to be. So if you are not in a community group, we want you to be in one. So please come uh, early next week. And in between services, there'll be ladies out in the foyer in blue shirts that'll help you find a community group so that you can plug in and you can take the next step on the pathway. Well, let's pray and ask God to help us this morning, then we'll study together. Father, we thank you for this opportunity that we have before your word. And we pray in advance as we enter into this time, Lord, that you would banish all distraction, that you would help us to hear from you. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would come and give ears to hear, that we would joyfully receive what you say to us and that courageously we would obey and respond. And Lord, that ultimately you get all the glory, praise and honor for only you are due it. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So, uh, if you have your listening guide, you can pull those out. Pleasure is God's invention. Now, <clears throat> maybe some uh, children in here. I know there's some young people, and that's good. And maybe there's some children in here. It's going to get a little dicey. Uh, if you didn't run into anybody who was in the first service and they said, Ooh, get ready, uh, then Ooh, get ready. Uh, but don't worry, we're not going to, I'm not going to say anything that uh, your kids won't hear on the Disney Channel. Okay? But we are going to talk about sex, so if that makes you uncomfortable, then sex, 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 because that's about what we're going to be talking about. So, just trying to get you prepared. All right? God talks about it, so we're going to talk about it. Pleasure is God's invention. Listen, the Bible says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. The Bible tells us about God in Psalm 16, 11, that at, in His presence is fullness of joy, and at His right hand are pleasures forevermore. The Bible wants us to know that God is not a kill joy, but God is a joy giver. That's who our God is. And if you think about some of the implications of us being created in the image of God. The fact that we're image bearers is, is uh, opportunity for some interesting things to think about. Like, for example, that God built into us laughter. You see, because God has a sense of humor and God is a God of joy. And so when we laugh... That's something that God gave us. Did you ever think about that? You, you think about how God, for example, we, we are, we're just singing to the Lord and how music is a gift from God and how when you hear a song that you really love, you start tapping your foot or, you know, if you're like Miss Suzanne, you just start dancing, okay? Because you just respond to the music, I'm not lying, John, she will bust out and dance now. You just respond to the music that you hear. And why is that in us? And, and when God hears music that he loves, you know, is he tapping his foot? And is he, I mean, what, how is he responding? But that comes from God. No one taught us to do that or told us to do that. It's just in us. God gave us taste buds. You see, God, in His goodness and in His desire for us to enjoy and to have pleasure, He, he didn't just make it to where we eat to live, to survive, 
Because it would have been easy for him to just create us to where everything tastes like broccoli and we just, you know, have to survive. But that's not what he did. He gave us taste buds so that, that different things uh, for different ones of us. You know, some of y'all are weird. And you eat weird stuff. And you really like it. And it's weird. But me, I am the authority on what's good and not good. So if you want to know, you can contact me. That's a gift from God. What a, what a, what a God we serve. The, the way He does things. You know, I started thinking about how, well, a lot of times these days I think about all the, uh, all the negative things that come with getting older. Not that I'm getting older, but I worry about some of y'all. And, uh, but you know what? It's not all bad, is it, Ricky? It's not all bad. There's some good things that come with getting old. One in particular, grandkids. Boy, what a gift that is. So I've been spending a lot of time with little Tatum and you know, I'm her favorite by far. It's not even close. So we hang out, and she giggles and laughs, and we play. And, you know, I noticed that already she's just like me, just like you. That from the day we were born and until today, and it will always be as long as we're on this earth, we're driven by desire. It drives us. See, Tatum's learning to crawl. Now, the only reason she, she, she's not learning to crawl because she wants to crawl. She's learning to crawl because she wants to get to something. Desire. Everything she does is based on desire, just like you, just like me. Everything we've pursued in our life was pursued because of a desire in us. God made us that way, and why did He make us that way? It seems shallow at first, but then you think about it and you go, no, God made us to be driven by desire. You see, from the, from the onset, He designed us to be born unfulfilled in this life. We're unfulfilled, and He is the only true source of fulfillment. And so He put in us that we would desire Him, that we would seek after Him. But the problem is, is that we have substituted other things in His place. We've chased after things that can't fulfill us. Things, experiences, achievements. And here's what we've learned. We've all learned this. That no matter how hard we chase them, and no matter how many times we catch them, they leave us empty. And unfulfilled. And so there's a design in God's structure, in His system. See, God won't allow us to find true satisfaction in lesser things, but Satan wants us to spend our lives trying. You see, that's our enemy's MO. That's his whole plan is that he knows that we're driven by this desire. And so what he does is he tries to divert us from pursuing the fulfillment of our desire with other things. That's really simple the way this works. See, if you really think about it, I don't know if you've ever thought this through or not, but Satan cannot create pleasure. He cannot create pleasure. He can only pervert it. Because, see, all pleasure is, it comes from God. And then Satan perverts the pleasure because he can't, he can't create anything on his own. He can't come up with something new, so he has to pervert a good gift from God. You see, sin would be pointless, right? It would be pointless if it didn't seem desirable. It wouldn't make any sense. No one would be tempted by it. It would be useless. It would 
It's always a perversion of what is good. Always. Now with that context and what we talked about last week, let's look at 1 Corinthians 6. We'll begin in verse 12. Paul says now to this young church of young Christians, some of these believers in the church at Corinth have just been believers for a number of weeks. They're babes in Christ. And they are trying to be Christians in this culture that is riddled with sexual immorality and all sorts of different temptations and struggles. And they're, they're struggling. They're, they're, they don't have uh, a strong identity. And they're constantly reverting back to who they used to be. And so Paul is, again, this morning going to give them this admonition and reminder to bring them back on path. Verse 12, the Bible says, All things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Food for the stomach and stomach for foods, but God will destroy both it and them. Now the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God both raised up the Lord and will raise up us by His power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them a member of a harlot? Certainly not. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body. But he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. I told you it was going to be fun. Okay. So the greatest heresy in all the world is that sin is rewarding and holiness is restrictive. This is the basic foundational lie behind all sin. Is that somehow from the get-go, from uh, the Garden of Eden... It was always the enemy's plan to say there's something better, that God's holding back from us, that somehow his plan is less than. And if we take matters into our own hands, we can find fulfillment. We can find satisfaction because we're, again, driven by desire. Now, let's look at how this starts in verse 12. Look again. All things are lawful for me, Paul says, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. So what Paul is dealing with in this first verse is the way in which the Corinthians were, were misrepresenting freedom in Christ in order to accommodate their sinful lifestyle, in order to make excuses for the things that they were doing. You see, throughout... 1 Corinthians, I've multiple times addressed this issue of freedom. A couple weeks ago, I gave you a definition of freedom in Christ. And today, we're going to talk a little bit about that, again, in a different way, because I'm trying to get you to see from all the facets that the Bible teaches so that you get a good understanding of what is freedom in Christ and what is not. You see, freedom exists in the elimination of bondage. That's what freedom is. Now, that should not shock anybody. Here's how the Bible puts it in Romans chapter 6. But God be thanked that though you were slaves to sin, yet you obeyed from the heart the form of doctrine to which you were delivered, and having been set free from sin, you then became slaves of righteousness. So salvation is the only path by which a person can be freed from the bondage of sin. Right? Okay, so now let's look again at verse 12. He says, all things are lawful to me, but all things are not helpful. Though they're lawful, I'm not going to be brought under the power of them. Now, this verse, verse 1 Corinthians 6, 12, is the verse by which the principle that guides, I mean, a vast majority of my life is guided by this verse. 
And if you talk to any of the pastors here, Pastor Brian would tell you in five seconds, he's heard me say it a thousand times. I've heard him say it. I hear Matt say it all the time. I say it all the time. Just because you can doesn't mean you should. It's one of the guiding principles of my life. It comes from this verse right here. You see, when Paul says, well, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful, you see, it's the the same mistake a child makes when they come to their parent. A child comes to a parent, and this is what a child says. Mom, Dad, can I? No, 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 right? That's what kids say. Well, that's not the right question, but they don't understand that. That's how they ask the question. What the question really is, is will you let me? That's the question. It's not can I? You see, and so we, then we grow up, and, but we play the same game with God. Let me give you an example. See, I can, I can take my gun and go into a bank and demand money. I can do that. Should I do that? But I can. You see, I have the freedom to do that. You know, you know what this verse teaches? Look at this verse. Look at it. And listen to what I'm about to say. One super simple, clear principle that comes out of this verse is lawful things can enslave us. You see that? Look at what it says. He says, I don't want to be, I'm not going to be brought under the power of what? Of things I can do. You see, we're not talking about things you can't do. We're talking about things you can do. That's why I'm so careful about things I can do. Do you know the greatest danger in my life and the greatest danger in your life is not the things we can't do. It's the things we can do. Amen? Yeah, I mean, this isn't rocket science. See, as Christians, we are called by God to abide by the laws of the land, right? Yes, but the laws of the land don't determine my morality. There's a big difference. One of the problems in the church today is there's a lot of Christians out there that don't know the difference between what I just said. Just because it's legal doesn't mean it's wise. God's not calling me and you to do what's legal. He's calling us to do what's wise. And those are two different things. Because in case you don't know, most of the people making the laws are not very wise. But that's okay. Here's, here's a working definition for today about Christian freedom. Christian freedom, to define it, would be to say, I have the power to do what pleases God. That's what the Bible teaches. That, that the power of bondage has been removed from me, right? In salvation, and you, right? That's what Romans 6 just said. Now, but listen. I have the power to do what pleases God. You have the power to do what pleases God. But the power doesn't force you to do what pleases God, does it? No. You have the freedom to determine whether or not you're going to utilize the power or not. See, if you're saved this morning, you've never encountered a situation. It's impossible for you to encounter a situation that you don't have the power to please God. You know that? But how many times have we failed to please God? It's not because we have a power problem. It's because we have a freedom problem. That's our problem. It's interesting. Thousands of years ago, a church in Corinth... It's just like 
the church today. The same. Look, look at verse 13. Food for the stomach and stomach for food, but God will destroy both it and them. Now the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. Now let me explain to you what's going on. The first sentence in this verse is, he's just quoting the Corinthians. This is their slogan. Their slogan is, hey, food for the stomach, stomach for food, but God will destroy both of them. In other words, you know, I have desires, and when, I'm, when I desire to eat something, then I eat something. And it doesn't matter what I eat because God's going to destroy the body. And so, when I have other desires, in other words, if, if I have a desire, God gave me the desire, well then if He didn't want me to act on my desire, then why did He give me the desire? I mean, every Christian teenager has asked himself that question. I mean, why do I have this desire if I can't act on the desire? Why did God give me the desire? Something doesn't seem fair exactly what they're saying they're like look it's just a desire like to eat food see they're justifying we don't have to wonder what they're justifying because the next sentence tells us that right the answer to what they're doing with this slogan is now the body's not for sexual immorality so clearly what they're doing is they're using this to justify their sexual activity as a natural human urge. Just like getting hungry. In other words, we're, just, we're no different than animals. We're just like animals. That's what a lot of people think today. It's just a natural urge like eating. I watch a lot of, uh, you know, animal television. It used to be Discovery Channel, but now it's whatever, you know. Whenever something's eating something, I want to watch that. Let me just put it that way. That's my kind of entertainment. And uh, you, you notice that animals do things out of instinct. That they... Especially when it comes to reproduction, it's a biological motivation. You know, there's seasons and rut and different things of that nature, right? But human beings aren't that way. You see, image bearers are the only thing in creation that uses reason, or at least ought to use reason, with regards to who they will be physically intimate with this idea that you know well God's just going to destroy our bodies they're going to get destroyed anyway so who cares what we do with them only the soul matters this is one of the oldest heresies in the entire Bible the book of Colossians was written to a church at Colossae who had fallen into this heresy it's called Gnosticism and anytime somebody tries to tell you that what you do in the body doesn't matter, only the soul matters, they have an evil agenda. Because there's a lot of false religions out there today, and they all subscribe to this ideology, Gnosticism. And I wonder why that is. So that it can be a physical free-for-all. That's exactly why that is. Because if you just convince people that only what happens in the soul matters and that what happens in the body doesn't matter, well then, heck. But this text is teaching us something very different. See, Paul's saying here that sex is not just a physical thing. Because your body is inseparable from who you are. See, you can't go anywhere without your body. In case you didn't know that, you can't do that. Wherever you go, your body goes. You and your body are inseparable. Now, lest you think that Jesus isn't concerned about our physical body or that God's not concerned about our physical body, well, consider the fact that Jesus fought a spiritual battle in a physical body. He went to the cross in a physical body. He died for our sin 
in a physical body. He was risen from the dead in a physical body. And right now, at this moment, he's at the right hand of the Father in a physical body. Right now. Oh, it, it matters. Here's what the Bible says in Colossians chapter 1. And you who were once alienated and enemies in your own mind by wicked works. See, that's who you were. Yet now you've been reconciled. And how is it? Look at what the Bible says. In the body of his flesh. You see that? The body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. Oh, it matters. It matters. You know, in John chapter 1, everybody knows John 1.14. Well, let's think about it for a second. The Bible says, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Have you ever thought about this? The Word didn't put on flesh. The Word became flesh. Became flesh. That's an important distinction. He became flesh. Why? Because it matters. How do we know that? Look at the next verse. Look at verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies that you think don't matter are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. It just got awkward. You see what God said right there? Now, he said, your body is a member of Christ. He said, your body and the body of Christ are joined together. I didn't say that. God said that. Now, what are the implications of our body and Christ's body being joined together? Oh, there are many. He says, would you take the body of Christ and connect it to that word harlot? Is porne in the Greek... It just means an immoral person. Would you connect it to an immoral person? Would you take the body of Christ and connect it to an immoral person? For the two, he says, have become one flesh. Now, let's think about the uh, positive side of this for a second. Because it'll be, it'll be, give us a minute to catch our breath. Okay? I want you to think about how amazing it is that new life comes into this world through pleasure. I mean, don't think too much about it because it'll get real weird. But You know, I mean, if we were to have the birds and the bees talk, you know, if you were to ask me, Pastor, now where do babies come from? I would explain to you that you probably wouldn't understand it, but they come from, well, they come from pleasure. and That's where they come from. Isn't that interesting? Now, I want you to think for a second of all the ways God could have designed the world to operate. In other words, God could have made it to where uh, He could have created us, and He could have made it to where when we reach a certain age or a certain level of maturity, we have an offspring. He could have done that. So he could have made us all, he could have made us all one sex, and he could have made it to where when we reach a certain age, we have offspring. That's what we do. I mean, we get to a certain level of maturity. There's lots of animals in creation that work just like that. He could have done that, but he didn't, he didn't like that idea. What else could he have done? Well, he could have, he could have made uh, the gift of life merit-based. So he could have made it to where in order to have a child, 
you got to achieve some certain level of something. You know what I mean? You have to do something, achieve something. You know, maybe you, you have to run a marathon. If, if you can't run a marathon, you can't have a child. So at a certain age, everybody starts training for a marathon. Why are you training for a marathon? Because I want to be a parent. Now, that seems weird now, but it wouldn't be weird if that's how God made it. He could have made it that way, but he didn't make it that way. He could have made it to where in order for you to have a child, you got to memorize a certain amount of things. Or you got you to do this. You got to jump through these hoops. Or you gotta, but he didn't do any of that. What did he do? Look at what the verse says. You see, the, he's simply quoting what, God said, what Jesus said, what, what God said in the book of Genesis. The two will become one flesh. You see, God... Didn't like any of those other ideas. In his awesomeness, he makes it to where in order for life to come, there has to be a man and a woman, not two men, not two women. There has to be two individuals made to complement one another, fit together. I'm going to put a graphic up. You ready? Fit together, just them? No. One more person. Him. A man, a woman, and God. That through a gift comes a greater gift. By his design, that's what God did. You see, in Acts chapter 3, the Bible refers to Jesus as the author of life. There's no life that's ever existed that God didn't create. All life has to have God involved. So whether someone acknowledges it or not, that's the requirement. So verse 15, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Wait a minute, what now? Shall then I take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Well, certainly not. Or do you not know that he who joins himself with a harlot is one body with her for the two become one flesh? You see this, the two become one flesh. Now, we, we know this. If you've ever been to a Christian wedding, you know somewhere along the line this was quoted from Genesis. But what does it mean? Well, well, let's just talk about what it clearly, obviously doesn't mean. It doesn't mean when two people get married or when two people join together in a sexual act that they literally fuse together in flesh. They don't become Siamese twins. We know that. Well, not all of us in the room know that, but most of us do. Just trying to keep you on your toes here. So what does it mean? It doesn't mean that the flesh is joined together. It must mean something more. It means that the whole self. Remember earlier where I was showing you how Paul is making sure that they can't dissect the body from the soul? Well, you can't dissect the body from the soul. See, one flesh, wherever the flesh goes, the soul goes. So it's not just the flesh, it's it's the whole person. It's the totality of who you are. The body means your total self. So here's what happens. When, according to Scripture, when two people engage in a sexual act, their whole persons are then joined together. Their identity is joined together. Their souls are joined together. Everything is joined together. And here's what doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what it means to you. What you mean by it is pointless. You're the one who is abandoning wisdom. 
God says when two people join together, they become one person. That's what the Bible says. The Bible says that when a saved person joins together with another person, Christ is joined into that with them. So that means that the decisions that you make with regards to your sexual activity, that you think you have the freedom to make, you're taking Christ into that activity. You need to understand what I just said. You take Christ into that activity. You are joining the body of Christ in that activity. Lest you are uncertain of what I'm saying, then just look at verse 17. For he who is joined to the Lord, that means every saved person who has the Spirit of God within them, is one spirit with him. So that means that you can't go anywhere without Christ. And you can't do anything without Christ. And I don't mean that in a Sunday school way. I mean that in a literal, figurative, real, physical way. You see, the Bible teaches us that marriage and sex are a picture of something. It's a picture of Christ's relationship with His people. Now, the picture is portrayed as Christ on the cross giving Himself as a propitiation or a payment to save people. To take the judgment that we deserve and to cleanse us and make us beautiful. And in doing so, what he does is he commits himself to us totally. He doesn't give us part of himself. There's not a partial commitment on the cross. It is a total 100% sellout on our behalf. Anything less than 100% and all of us are doomed to hell forever. God gave everything for us on the cross that joins us to him for every second of every breath we take in Christ, He is in us. We are in Him. They are inseparable. Everything you watch, everything you listen to, everything you hear, everything you think, everything you do, you take the body of Christ with you into that. It is not a game and it is not a joke. Once you're saved, there is no more my life. My life doesn't exist. It's not in the vocabulary of a Christian. You don't have a life. Your life died on the cross and was covered with blood. You now have Christ's life. So you better take that into account when you're making decisions because it isn't your life to make decisions about. I told myself I wasn't going to get wound up. So that means whatever you do and wherever you go, Christ is with you. See, You could say, well, Pastor Tony, you're just getting a little wound up here and a little overzealous about all this. Am I? 
Do you know that every Sunday, every Sunday, while I'm preaching, God says amen. Just let that be a warning to what I'm about to say. Every Sunday. I don't mean here and there. Every Sunday. While I'm preaching. Multiple people attempt to access pornographic sites on their mobile device. On our network. Of course they can. We see that. We know. We can see. We can see you trying. We can see what you're trying to look at. We can see you looking at Facebook while I'm preaching. We can see that. At church. How do you determine what's okay for you? What's your grid? What's your freedom? Hmm? How do you determine what to watch? Like when you watch a movie, how do you determine whether you're going to watch it or not? What do you do? Some of you just watch it. You know why? Because... You say, well, I'm a grown-up. I don't understand that. So I guess when you, you grow up, sin is okay when you grow up. I'm confused by that whole process. But So you just watch whatever you want to watch? Is that what you do? Or what is your grid? Like what's your, you know, like how many, how, how many cuss words is acceptable? How much nudity is, accept, is acceptable? Like what's the grid? How do you do that? It's a fascinating question. I'm always fascinated when I hear people talking about their media intake. And of course, I never know what anybody's talking about because I've never seen what in the heck you're talking about. Because I'm not going to sit there and watch something with Christ sitting right next to me. I'm not going to do that. See, some of you have heard me talk about this before, but when I first got saved, I mean, listen, I have a lot of experience with sin and pain and sexual immorality and all sorts of very painful, hurtful things. And when I first got saved, you know, I was trying to sort all these things out. And I was on the cusp of making the mistake that most people in the church today, most of you make. You know how you base your, you just base it on your, your sphere of influence, the people around you. You watch the junk that your parents watch in their house. See, whatever's okay for them's okay. You watch what your friends watch. That's what you do. You, they determine your morality. That's what most people do. It's unbelievable. And I was on the brink of falling into that trap. But here's what happened. One day, by the grace of God, I'm a brand new Christian. Kayla's a little baby. And I'm sitting in my living room. And Kayla was on the floor, and Lisa was sitting on the floor, and they were playing. And the television was on. And Kayla was saying, Dada, 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 over and over. And I'm watching TV. And finally, Lisa screams, Tony. And I looked at her, and I said, What? And she said, you don't hear your daughter calling your name? And it was like I could hear God whisper in my ear. You remember what it was like to be fatherless, Tony? It was a defining moment in my life when Lisa came home the next day, there were no televisions in my house. They were all gone. 
We had no TV. I didn't watch TV for five years. For five years. Not because I'm spiritual, but because I'm weak. It took five years for me to be able to trust myself to watch a television. Five years. Now, I know that you're way more spiritual than I am. I'm just talking about me. But what is your grid? What all do you bring Christ into? And you know, what's so pathetic about this whole conversation is that you know what? At the end of the day, sucks us right into the gutter. Is that somehow, we think, because I, I know what you're thinking right now. There's some of you in here, and you know what you're thinking right now. You're thinking, what do you expect me to do? Just get out of the world? You expect me to just stop watching movies? You expect me to just stop? Would it really be the end of your life? Would it really be? Is it really that stinking important? Is it really that you invite into your home, that you subject your children, that you think, is it really worth it? Is it really worth it? So that you can be relevant. So that you can know what everyone else knows. So that you can see what's going on. Is it, does it really matter that stinking much? Does it really? Would it kill you? Would it kill you? If you just admitted all the things in your life right now that you're not mature enough to handle and they need to go, would it kill you if they went away? Or would it be the best thing that ever happened to you? I mean, let's be honest. What are we dragging Christ into? There you are, you and Jesus. What are y'all doing? Based on the statistics, 50% of you in this room have seen a pornographic image in the last 30 days. Male and female. Get your listening guide out and flip it over. Look about four questions down. All those statistics right there, those are today. Today. Here's what the Bible says, Proverbs 15. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch over evil and good. You're one with the Lord, and the Lord's one with you. And there's no escaping it. Verse 18, flee sexual immorality. Based on verse 17. Run! from it now that you realize what it is get away from it every sin that a man does is outside the body but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body do you not know that your body is the temple of the holy spirit who is in you whom you have from god and you are not your own what is a temple let's just have sunday school 101 what is a temple a temple is a place for worship The Bible says that we're a temple. Our body is a temple. That a Christian's body is a center for worship. That's what it is. That when you come to church, you don't come to the temple. You bring the temple to a building. That's what the Bible says. So, and you don't just bring your soul and leave your flesh behind. Like all the things you did in your flesh. Well, that doesn't come with you. Oh, no. Oh, no. That's not how this works. 
Romans 12, Paul says, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your whole bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. You see, we live our lives as an act of worship. All of our lives, our flesh, our body, all of it is a, it's a temple. Think of it this way. Our bodies are the place God has chosen to live. Now this just doesn't, I'm mean, just going to be honest with you. At this point, I start thinking, God, I'm not sure this was wise. Like, I know you're all wise, and I know you're perfect and sovereign and good, but this seems like a bad move on your part. Like, you might want to reconsider this. Choosing to live in us, that's a risky move. That's a bold move. Why in the world would the God of the universe choose to live in you? Why would he do that? It seems insane. Or is it? To prove. His unbreakable bond in the relationship. You see, just like you can't depart from your body, you can't depart from Christ, but that that's by His design, by His choice, that He loves you so much, that He's so committed to this relationship, that He's so in. See, He's all in. He's totally faithful. He's sold out. That he's made a way for you to never be able to go anywhere, ever, or do anything, ever, without him, by his choice. Now, I know for some of you, that doesn't really sound like good news, because you're thinking to yourself, man, that's a bummer. You know, you're like a teenager who just found out that your mom and dad are going to go everywhere with you and see everything and do it, follow you. You're like, great. Well, this is about to be wonderful. You're kind of bummed out. You can't go anywhere without God. You can't do anything without Him. But that's because you're looking at this all wrong. You see, if, you know, when I said Christian freedom is to be able to say I have the power to do what pleases God, well, if that's Christian freedom, then what's Christ's presence? That means that the power to defeat sin is always within me. Always. So I, I, mean, I don't always have, I, it's not only that I have access to the power, but I possess the power within me. That means that 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 365 days a year, every second of every year, of every day, every breath I take for all my life, I breathe in, in the presence of, and the power of, the Spirit of God to defeat sin and to do what pleases God. But here's the thing, to do what's best for me and best for the people around me. Did you hear that? That the bad news is actually the best news ever. That you and I in Christ have within us the forever power to do what's best for us. And what's best for the people around us. But we don't do that all the time, do we? No, we don't. None of us do. But see, God's made provision for that, see, because we're one with Christ. And here's what that means is that when you fail, when I fail, we don't have to go looking for God. You don't have to call God on the phone and make an appointment and see if he's available and wait until it comes. To, no. You don't have to fill out some kind of a form, submit an application. You don't have to write a proposal and then the Trinity is going to vote on it and decide whether or not they're going to deal with you or forgive you. Or You don't have to do any of that. You know why? Because God's in you. So when you need him the most, where is he? Right there with you. 
Instead of spending all your time being so worried about how you can get around the fact that God's with you, how much sin can I do and get away with it? How can I get away with this and get away with that? Why don't you embrace the reality that God's in you because he loves you so much that he's never going to let you get out of his sight. And if you know what I know, man, I don't want to get out of his sight because I cannot be trusted out of his sight. Do you know what keeps me where I need to be? This reality right here. Right here. And, and look at what the Bible says. Psalm 71, the Bible says, Though you were made, though you have made me to see troubles, many and bitter, you'll restore my life again. From the depths of the earth, you will again bring me up. You will increase my honor and comfort me once more. Yeah. Look at verse 20, see? You were bought with a price, and therefore, remember last week what we talked about? Your purpose on this earth? Look, it's right there. You were bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So, so, so this is what I want you to understand. Because look, I want you to get free. I want you to have victory. And I'm going to tell you the only way that's going to happen. And the church historically has messed this up big time. And so don't do what a lot of people used to tell you to do. Because it won't work. It won't work. Sex is God's invention. And sex has God's intention. And therefore, purity in sexuality will never come it, it, it will never come in contrast to pleasure, but in pursuit of it. If you are going to have victory, what you cannot do is run away from this and act like it's not real. That you're gonna, then you're going to be enslaved to it for sure. What you have to do is realize this is God's design. So if you're married, then you need to... Press in to the gift that God's given you in marriage and only in marriage. And you need to run from every other thing in your life and every other influence in your life. If you're not married, if you're yet to be married, then you need to begin to prepare yourself to receive this amazing gift. But if you try to act like it's bad or act like it's dirty or try to, you are going to be enslaved to it because that's wrong. That's wrong. Listen, look at verse 20. Does it ever strike you? Don't you ever read things in the Bible like I do and go, why does it say that? Look at verse 20. The first thing, every time I read verse 20, I think about this. Why doesn't it say, for you were bought? Therefore, glorify God in your body, right? See, like if I have something and you go, hey, Tone, where'd you get that? I go, I bought it. Isn't that what you say? I don't go, oh, I bought it, and here's where I bought it, and here's how much I paid for it. I just say I bought it. Why doesn't the Bible say, well, you were bought, so then, well, wouldn't that be the same? No, it wouldn't be, because you weren't just bought. The Bible wants you to know you were bought at a price, and it wasn't just like, hey, there wasn't anybody, uh, you know, you went up for auction, nobody bid, so God just got you at the minimum. No, no, that's not how that worked. No, no, there was a specific price assigned to our redemption, and it was predicated by the Father. The cost of our forgiveness was based on the magnitude of God's holiness. You see that? That we, we, we couldn't just set our own price for redemption or nobody else could. It's based on the holiness of God. That's why the price was so high is because God's so holy that it was going to take this unbelievable sacrifice to redeem us. But now it all makes sense because we couldn't have partial commitment because then there would be no presence. See, for God to dwell in us. See, in order for God to dwell in us, God has to cleanse us. 
And there can be no forgiveness apart from the shedding of blood. So how incredible is it that God chose to live in us? Wow. And this picture is all throughout the Bible. Some of you may be familiar with the prophet Hosea in the Old Testament. He was a prophet at a time when the people of Israel were, were very rebellious. And God kept telling them repeatedly over and over that they were prostituting themselves with false gods. And they wouldn't listen. And so God told Hosea to be a representation of how he loves his people. And he said, Hosea, I want you to marry a prostitute named Gomer. And so Hosea married a prostitute. And he brought her into his home and he loved her and he was faithful to her and he was good to her and, and things would go good for a while but then the way she used to be would sneak back into her life and she'd go back to her old ways and, and it would be heartbreak for Hosea. But this went round and round until finally she completely abandoned herself back to her old ways of life and she found herself right back where she once was. And so there's this picture in the book of Hosea where there's Gomer, the prostitute, going up for auction. And she's standing up there naked as a crowd of men look over her body and decide what they're willing to pay. And as she stands there demoralized and defeated, a voice in the crowd says, five shekels. I give five shekels. Then the voice says ten shekels. And then Gomer recognizes the voice and she thinks, could it be? Could it be? Hosea? And he says, 15 shekels. And as the bidding goes, he, he says, 15 shekels of silver and five bushels of barley. And he buys his harlot bride back. And so I thought to myself, hmm, I wonder how much five bushels of barley is worth. So I looked up in the Old Testament, and I found out that five bushels of barley cost 15 shekels. So that means Hosea bought Gomer for 30 pieces of silver. The same price Judas received for betraying Jesus. The same price. That God is showing us through this Old Testament prophet how Hosea bought Gomer to bring her back to himself. How Jesus bought us with his blood to bring us back to himself. You see, I've often wondered, I've often thought, you know, it's, it's hard to be a, a dad. It's hard to be a husband. Man, it's hard. It's hard to read the Bible and hear things like, you're the spiritual leader of your home and the priest of your home. It's hard to hear that. And I've often wished, you know, you know what would make it so much better is if, if Jesus had gotten married, started a family. I could just read about that and I could just do exactly what he did and it would just help so much. 
But Jesus didn't get married. Jesus never had sex. Do you know why? Do you know why that is? That's because Jesus is already engaged. Jesus already has a bride and he'll never be unfaithful to his bride. Because newsflash, the first thing that the book of Revelation says is in our future when we get to heaven is we're all going to have the marriage supper of the Lamb. Because our, our God is faithful. We're Gomer. He's faithful. So lest you allow the enemy to fill your heart with condemnation instead of rejoicing in the conviction that only God can bring, be reminded that the cost to God for us was the cross of Christ. And he willingly, joyfully, but horrifically paid that cost. So that this morning, we could not just sit here and lament all the things we wish we'd done differently, but that we could access the power within us to repent and, and to get right with God. And to say, Lord, I can't go back and change yesterday, but I can change from here forward. You and Christ are one. You're inseparable. Why would you join the body of Christ to a harlot? Let's stand and bow our heads.